Listener Production. In the early days, Kate McLennan and Kate McCartney never got booked for the same TV shows. At the time, women were few and far between in comedy sketches and executives never imagined that they'd need more than one woman, let alone more than one Kate. But when they did finally meet in person, the two became firm friends and writing partners. The Catering Show delivered razor-sharp comedy parodying the kind of television cooking shows that made dishes McCartney, who is allergic to everything, couldn't even eat. Next came Get Kraken on the ABC, this time parodying commercial morning TV, where the pair took on everything from the absence of First Nations people on our screens to the plight of working mums. And now the Kates are back with an Amazon Prime original television series, which they self-describe as Broadchurch but funny. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, Helen Smith joins me for The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, eat, do and listen to. But first, here is my conversation with the creators of Deadlock, Kate McCartney and Kate McLennan. Kate McCartney and Kate McLennan, welcome to the Weekend Briefing. Oh, Jamila, thank you for having us. Oh, I'm so excited to have you. I've been looking forward to this for a very long time because Mm. you have caught me midway through my second deadlock binge. Oh. So I I have a lot to talk to you about and a lot of things to ask. But first things first. Yes. Tell us what the reaction to your incredible new show has been like. Has it been... Has it been what you expected? Are you getting parades from your family members and, you know, extra kindness from your extended family and loved ones? I mean, McLennan is, aren't you? I've had a few cousins reach out. Yeah. I've had aunties reach out, which is good. My family's into it. My brother-in-law, who I didn't expect to be into the show, loves it. He's a big fan of Eddie. I've had ladies at my weekend exercise class come up to me. I've had people at the supermarket come up to me. McCartney, what have you had? Um, nothing. <laughs> what have you done wrong? I don't know. I tell you what, like, honestly, I've had, Jamila, you texted me about it. Yeah, and no one else. That's it. Oh, come on. That is not true. That is not true. Sometimes when I'm with McLennan, I'll get praised because they can put two and two together. But a lot of the time, <laughs> no. Like, I don't know. I've oh, Some of my family in Perth have said, well done to me. So that's been very nice. Wouldn't want you to get a big head. Keep us in our place. But we I feel like there has been a response on social media yeah. that's been pretty fun. Like we've had lots of people have really um, grabbed on to the Eddie character and the Dulcie characters, you know, like doing cosplay. And um, today there was a woman who has made an Eddie puppet, which is oh, hilarious. Frankly, yeah, <laughs> sort of Jim, Jim Henson-y-ish, like, you know, legally distinct from Jim Henson-y sort of Sesame Street puppets, but in that same vein, glorious, complete yeah. with like a messy bun and one leg up on the desk and a um, giving the middle, middle finger. Um, I'm ensorcelled with it. I love it. Yeah, that is absolutely glorious. So we're going to have a bunch of our audience who are listening right now who haven't had the delight of watching Deadlock yet. So you're going to show me how practised you are now at giving us like the, the really short, sweet, amazing synopsis that makes everyone really excited to see the characters who the puppet is based on. Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. McLennan, off you go. No, I knew you were going to do that. I knew it. I knew it. 
So Deadlock is a murder mystery set in a little coastal Tasmanian town um, and they're preparing for their Deadlock Winter Festival, which is a, a culinary um, arts festival that they have every winter. And on the eve of that festival, a body turns up on the beach and it's a dead nude man, not a woman who you'd usually find in these crime shows, but a, a man. So it all kicks off from there. So the local detective um, is a woman called Dulcie Collins. So she takes over the case, but um, all of the Tassie homicide are on the Princess Mary tour. So they have to ring in someone from mainland Australia. So we have a detective that comes down from Darwin called Eddie Redcliffe. And so the two of them are a bit chalk and cheese. And so, um, yeah, they team up and um, try and solve this murder. Well done. I was about to keep, I was about to keep going, but I'm going to pause and say well done. That didn't contain any spoilers, by the way. There's lots of spoilers. The more detail I go into, the more I spoil it. So, mm. I, you know, we want people who are watching for the first time to have a pristine experience. That is what we want. I yeah. am delighted by this and I'm excited by one of the first things that you said, which is that this starts, and guys, we are not spoiling this. This is literally the first 10 seconds of episode one. We have a body washed up on the beach and it's a man. And you specifically said it's not a woman, Kate, so tell me about that because so often the trope we do see in detective murder mystery type shows is a whole lot of dead female bodies. Yeah, I mean, we sort of, when we first envisaged the show, we really did think of it as more of a kind of a parody of cop shows. But the more we watched, we watched a lot of crime shows when our kids were really young and we were breastfeeding sort of at 3am, that kind of witching hour of like having an existential crisis, not quite knowing if you're alive or if you exist. And for some reason um, we felt like watching uh, crime shows really kind of fitted that moodscape. But um, we, so we watched a lot then and it was just so uh, prevalent that kind of the kickoff to every series was like a dead young woman, you know. It was, you know... uh, and then a lot of the time it was just later, you know, there'd just be meetings between male detectives and male cops mm. over the the nude, naked corpse of a, of a woman. So it was just the more we thought about the idea, the more we wanted to really um, subvert the genre itself. And so we decided to kind of let people know what they were in for kind of within the first, you know, t- yeah, like you said, 10 seconds of the show. We were sort of really, just really interested in hearing from those women who, you know, the people that would normally be the victims in these types of shows or indeed, you know, our society, the sort of like hearing their stories out of their own mouths, you know, that was really interesting to us and why we wanted to tell this story. I really want to trot out the cliche that it also feels uniquely Australian and then I want to stab myself for using the phrase <laughs> uniquely Australian. But there is something about it where I, 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 every episode, and again, I am not going to spoil things either, but every episode I felt like I met characters and I was like, I know those people. Like I've met those women or I've come across blokes like that. Like those are people in my life. You had to get the money and the funding and the production to bring this story into our living rooms, and you've ended up going with and working with Amazon Prime to do that. How did you convince Americans to be into <laughs> into what does feel like a super Australian story? It does, but it's, you know, because we tend to like to work within a genre. 
so that we can kind of, people can read it immediately. They can kind of understand the world and then we start to subvert it once we're in there. So weirdly enough, when, you know, we've had a time of trying to sell sell ourselves and our ideas to people outside of Australia in the past, but with this one, the moment we, you know, the pitch name for the show, just to kind of get people to understand the tone, was always Funny Broadchurch. And when we said that to um, people overseas, they got it. Yeah. They always seemed to really kind of understand what we wanted to do. Um, And we were really, really lucky, particularly, you know, once we started talking to Prime, they didn't just get it, but they had zero interest in trying to Americanise it further. You know, they were confident that the universality of the story would be there and then the specificities would also make it unique and different. The only thing that we did kind of have to sell to Prime was the level of swearing. Um, The whole way through the scripting process, it was all completely fine. But then just um, as we got into production, um, you know, everyone's dotting the I's and crossing the T's trying to make sure that, you know, we're not putting out anything that's, um, you know, a hate crime. Um, And so they did come back to us and question the level of swearing that was in the show. And so we, they weren't sort of saying, you can't do this. It's just like, why are you doing this? Why Mm. is there so much swearing? And so um, our director, Ben Chessel, along with a bunch of us, we kind of um, had a hand in writing this. um, It's called The Cut Essay. And it basically describes the Australian, the Australian's relationship with the word cunt and just swearing in general and how it's, um, you know, it's part of our identity, I suppose. And, you know, I think reading between the lines of the essay was like, if you try and um, make us take these swear words out, then you are denying us our culture. Yeah. And our you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that, Americans. Can you publish the essay? I want to read the essay. We've been asked so many times to publish it. We still need to find, we need to get it off Ben Chessel because he was the one that sort of did um, yeah, craft most of it. Mm. We're going to have to go and get the, the leather-bound tomb from his library. <laughs> <laughs> it was so lofty. It quoted the um, like the Northern Territory tourism campaign ad, and just you know, just how we're very we'll use the word very casually, but then you know it has so many shades of meaning to us. And, it was also kind of talk yeah. around it being, um, you know, the the lyrical quality of it. Kind of there was sort of evoking Shakespeare, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so it was the iambic pentameter <laughs> of a sentence. You can tell that a, someone did an arts degree, you know. Yeah, someone being Ben, ben Chessel. <laughs> Yeah, and it worked. It worked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got it all through. We we didn't have another note after that. They were just like, yeah, cool. And then that was it. That was the last conversation that we had about it. <laughs> I I am so thrilled by this. Um, you two have been writing together for a long time and for a project this big, you've got to let a lot more people into the space, including people who, you know, aren't called Kate and you've got to sort of expand. Yeah, it is a shame. You've got to sort of extend, I suppose, your family of, of creative control in a big way. How did that go for you and how did you navigate that process of letting other people in? I mean, going from Get Kraken, like Get Kraken was a big crew as well, but not as big as this, um, it, like it was a real leap and it was an adjustment, particularly, you know, going through the writing period of having, you know, a few other writers and, you know, it was sort of incrementally getting bigger. But then like I remember rocking up on the first day of 
shooting and just seeing this paddock filled with tables and tents and marquees at breakfast and just being like, oh, my God, this is this is huge and driving past all of our unit trucks and, like, it was a real it, – it was a lot because we – we weren't able to sort of go around and and know everyone's yeah. names and, you know, everyone was wearing masks as well at this time because we were shooting sort of at the height of COVID protocol as well. So it was a, you know, it was an experience where we kind of had to delegate and we also had to just, I guess, really trust in the departments that were, um, that we'd hired to work on the show. And we had a fantastic producer, Andy Walker, who, you know, sort of, became our teammate, I suppose, on that front. So there was lots of people that we were like, you know, trusted collaborators, I I suppose. And then like our cast, like we really sort of, we were able to have sort of like a, a dialogue with our cast, which was really great so that we, you know, we really, it was our job to sort of bring them all into what our vision was. And then, you know, then you'd, do that with your heads of department and then it's kind of up to them to disseminate that information. So it was, you know, it's lots of tiers of it, which is new to us. Um, yeah, we were really lucky. But it's thrilling. It is thrilling. It's really, really thrilling because it, you know, at any stage of production you want things to, you want people to value add and to be better at their job than you would be. The people that we were working with, they just valued it in a way that we, you know, we just appreciated so much. And there was a lot of trust there in order to kind of pull this off. Like, and I mean, it was another reason why we decided not to be in the show. I mean, beyond the fact that we can't really act. Um, it was so that, I know, well, <laughs> you know, just, you know, we need to it's tell the true. truth. It's true. It was one of the reasons why we decided not to be in the show ourselves because, the largeness of the show required us to kind of sit outside it and be able to answer questions and, you know, be able to be available to heads of department and directors, you know, coming through. We were just really lucky that everyone was on board with the challenge and really were interested in trying to figure out how to balance crime and comedy like we were interested in doing it. Everyone was invested in that as a conversation from like the moment, so the moment they kind of went, they came on and then till the very end of production, everyone was just very interested in it. If I go back to the beginning of your working relationship, and, and for me that means watching the catering show online obsessively for quite a long time, how did you go from people who'd met each other in the industry to deciding to start creating something together? Did someone propose? Um, kind of. Actually, weirdly, we sort of got set up. A few people had said, you know, it had been through the kind of course of 10 years. We both started in the industry in the very early 2000s and we'd each get a job at sort of, you know, they always wanted one Kate or Kate Mook. Yeah. One Kate. Um in terrible sketch comedy shows. So we'd sort of like, we'd alternate between having that job at any given time, Um, never employed at the same time. So we'd never met. No, because you couldn't have, I mean, back then it was, you know, you'd very rarely have more than one woman in a sketch show. So I mean, I I wasn't, yeah, I did have a conversation once with a producer (laughs) who suggested I might like to dye my hair red because they already had a brunette in the cast. So there was that. Yeah. Um, Anyway, but, uh, but, so we had never met. We did have the same agent and I kept getting McLennan's pay slips 
during that time. And she was making a little bit more than me because she was actually, yeah, it was fun. Oh, no. Um, yeah. And I. Big, big voiceover money, $45 oh, residuals you were getting. Yeah, huge. Big, big stuff. Huge. That were the big days. That was the good old days. Halcyon days. Um, we. Um, but, yeah, a couple of mutual friends of ours had said, you know, you, you guys would get along really well. And, you know, when you're told by someone that you'd like someone else, you're like, oh, mm. you don't know me. It's not going to work. How dare you tell me? And then we met and it was like, oh, yeah, no, we do actually really like each other. So I don't know if it was so much a proposal. I'm not sure. We both came, you came to me, McLennan, with an idea for a show. Yeah. That was an animation. And I had already sort of been toying with another idea. They were very original ideas. Very original. It was about people, two two women, two white women who were approaching thirty, and realised that um, they hadn't, their lives were not what they thought they were going to be at thirty. I don't. I think. Oh, I've never I know, seen exactly that on TV. Right. I'd like to. I'd, I'd like, like to, to as well. It seems like like two middle class white girls two going two hot mess white women. <laughs> Little bit, bit Never of a drink, done. drinky, bit of a Never drinking problem. Done. Terrible at romance. Probably fall fall over occasionally. You know, kitchen's a mess. That's there sort are some of stuff. stories that just never get told. I know, and that is an indictment yeah. on the industry. I know. Yeah. So what a shame that that didn't make it to the screens. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. We'd been working for long enough and had been sort of stalled. I think probably variously for about ten years at that point. To the point where I'd actually left the industry. You'd you still give me a crap, McLennan. Yeah, I was doing stand-up at that time. Yeah. We found each other funny and we'd never had really, I had particularly never had the experience of someone saying, hey, you're funny and I understand your viewpoint. So I think we were really lucky because, sorry, for the reason that, you know, I think a lot of it was, one was that it was, you know, I probably wasn't that funny, but also I'd never been in a room with another woman before. You know, yeah. a comedy room. Mm. I'd never had someone else go, oh, yeah, no, I get I get why that's funny because that's my experience too. So having McLennan go, I get why that's funny, was really, <laughs> really validating. And, yeah, since then we sort of, we kind of just. We just kept going. Yeah, we did keep going. <laughs> like, we just kept going. We just kept we just digging kept ourselves going. further and further into the hole. <laughs> it's like, well, this yeah, is what we're doing now, I guess. This codependent hole that we've yeah we've dug for ourselves. We yeah, I think there is something really great about you know being able to collaborate with someone. And I think you know both of us. Um, I don't know if we were doing this on our own. I think it would be very very difficult to kind of pick yourself up after you know a challenging sort of period. Whereas with the two of us, we can you know we can wallow for a little bit, but then we just boot each other up the ass and we you know keep going. And so I think that's you know. There's been a lot of that that, yeah, we've just kept going and kept pushing and, um, you know, and we still do find each other funny. So that's, mm. you know, that's mm. good. I have I have pretty <laughs> profound ADHD so I just call McLennan my off-site executive function because I, <laughs> I have none. <laughs> well, I can tell you whatever you are doing, it absolutely works. I've just, as I mentioned, I've just started my second watch because my in-laws are in the country and they hadn't seen it yet. Uh, so my husband and I were like, it stands up second time around. We're still <laughs> having fun. Oh, that's we good. are loving it. Uh, loving it second time too. Congratulations to both of you. Cannot, cannot wait to see what you do next. Oh, Jamila. Thank you, mate. Thanks for having us. 
That's it for my conversation with Kate McCartney and Kate McLennan. As you can tell, I am one mega fan and I am recommending right now that you head off, get on Amazon Prime and make sure that you catch Deadlock. You will not regret it. You also won't regret sticking around here for a little bit longer because Helen Smith is up next with The Weekend List. Helen Smith is here and that's because it is weekend list time, everyone. And as always, we've scoured the internet and the big wide world for some fun things for you to do and probably buy knowing us this weekend. Helen, you're up first. All right. So I've just been on holidays. So my first recommendation is hiring a camper van and going on like a road trip. It's like camping, but glamping, which is my style because camping is fun, but not for a whole week for me. I was so lucky. I hired this camper van and did a trip up in Queensland and it is so warm. I forget that Queensland just does not have cold weather. I got upgraded and there was a shower and toilet in my camper van. It was a new world. I know it was so posh. Uh, But yeah, it was just so fun and it's such a great way to support Aussie tourism. And I just think if you can do it, if you're not going to go overseas like everyone else at the moment, just get a camper van, hire a camper van. There's lots of great deals as well because, you know, bargains are the best. We love a deal. Great suggestion, Helen. I love it. And um, I agree. I I like camping as well, but I I also like being clean. I can't do a full week. Uh, I just can't last that long. Excellent recommendation. It's about as different as you can get, folks, though I suppose you could be reading in your camper van during your mini holiday. I want to recommend a book. It's called Yellow Face. It's by R.F. Kwong, and it is now a number one New York Times bestseller. Gosh, this is good. I absolutely devoured it in a weekend. Uh, The setup, it's fiction. The setup is that there is a woman called June Hayward and she has a best friend, Anthea Liu, and they were sort of rising stars when they were at university, both uh, debut in the same year in publishing and they both publish books, except June's book bombs and that's kind of the end of her writing career before it even begins and Anthea wins all the awards, gets all the praise. And then, spoiler but not really a spoiler because it happens really fast, uh, and then Anthea dies really suddenly and June is there and so June takes Anthea's unfinished manuscript, finishes the manuscript and publishes it under her own name. But of course, June's a white woman and Anthea's book is partly about history of uh, Chinese soldiers and labourers during the world wars. And so the book brings up all these incredible questions of who owns the right to write what stories and what it means to write under a pseudonym and what cultural appropriation really is. And the entire story is told from from June, who is the stealer of the book's perspective. And so you do have these moments of incredible empathy for her, even when she's doing truly horrendous things. It's such a good read. Honestly, I just absolutely smashed through it and haven't done that in quite that way for a really long time. So really recommend. That sounds so interesting. I definitely, I need to get into my reading again. So that sounds great. I don't know why, but I just can't read at the moment. Uh, But my next recommendation is, uh, it's pretty basic again, but these tiny little juice shots that you can get from like Aldi's or Coles or Woolies. I always get them when they're on sale. Aldi has... Yeah, I've seen them at the supermarket. Yeah, yeah, those little juice shots. So I hate taking vitamins or pills. I am really bad. I literally 
I don't know why, but I it's something in my head. I cannot swallow tablets. <laughs> I've always been like that. So these little juice shots, I'm, I feel like they're a they're giving me like my health and vitamins in a way that I can do. So I love them and they just make me feel like, yes, you are starting your day, correct? Like, yes, you are so great. Like even though, you know, I might just go eat some bubble and squeak or hash browns after it, I think these juice shots are making me, making my brain work a bit more. They're making me you know, just that placebo effect. And I love that. So these little juice shots, you can also buy reusable little juice shots and fill them up with bulk juice, cheaper, if you're, you know, searching for that bargain. Uh, But yeah, that is my next one. Have a little juice shot in the morning. Do it. It's so fun. Finally, I want to recommend a new hair care brand called Robe. And I want to actually start by telling you the backstory about this brand because it is created by a friend of mine. So my friend Lauren was my hairdresser for years and years and years and she's incredible and she's one of those people who, uh, you know, started doing ordinary people's hair like mine and then took off and became like a stylist to superstars and moved to LA and became, you know, too expensive for me to say anymore. Uh, But we've been friends for a really long time and um, she was really kind to me. After I lost a bunch of hair, when I had a brain tumour and had to have a lot of my hair removed to be able to have surgery. Anyway, I got the shock of my life a couple of years ago when Lauren called me and said she'd been diagnosed with brain cancer herself and that the doctors had found a tumour the size of a tennis ball the day before and she was having it out in 24 hours. She is okay. She's alive. She's doing incredibly well. But as a result of that surgery and uh, the chemotherapy that Lauren went through next is that she started seeing enormous changes in her hair. She struggled to grow her hair with the same thickness and she struggled to grow it back at all. And she started reflecting on that and started reflecting on the complaints of various people she'd worked with over the years, including me, who'd said that hormone changes or age or illness or whatever it might be changed the way their hair looked and felt over the years and and didn't know what to do about it. And so she has created a hair care brand that is built to deliver on the various needs of people's hair. So not just a thin hair, fine hair, thick hair kind of thing, but much more complex in terms of what people's hair needs might be, including people who are experiencing um, early onset baldness, including people who are going through menopause, including people who have lost their hair around various treatments like chemotherapy or radiation. And I am not just plugging it because she's my friend, which I totally am, but I've been using it for the last couple of weeks. And I jumped on the website for Robe and checked it out and um, tried out the products and I absolutely love them. And already my hair does feel a bit more like it used to, like it's actually addressing the the problems that I was concerned about. So if that's you or if that's someone in your life, it sounds like such a trivial thing when someone's really ill to think about how you look and think about your hair, but actually it's a really important part of making yourself feel normal and also being allowed to choose who knows you're sick and who gets to ask you questions about it is maintaining how you used to look and feel and, and wanting that feeling back. So if there's someone in your life who's who's struggling or, or you are, this this might be something that might help you. So it's Robe, R-O-B-E, um, hair care, and it's by Lauren McKellar. And I'm just so impressed. I'm so impressed by her. 
That's it for the weekend briefing. For another week, everyone, thank you so much for giving us your company. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode of the briefing, then jump on the listener app where you can follow us uh, from there or you can follow or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back bright and early on Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.